Hey folks, thanks for joining us again. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac. No. This is Andy. I'm Andy. Nope. Fuck that up. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't currently offer any early access or any continuous exclusive access to content other than episodes we record, which we don't think really fit in with the theme here, which are few and far between, because after all, knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to good causes and we'll keep you in the loop. In the loop. While we do enjoy making this content, there are about 20 hours worth of work that go into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you don't feel like you can contribute, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and join us on our journey. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. Our handle is Poor Pearls Almanac, no spaces. We generally post stuff on gardening, guns, ecology, leftist history, and a fair amount of original content memes, so it's a pretty good time. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of this miniseries, at the very least, and catch up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. This is the third episode of a miniseries that we are calling the Reimagining Miniseries. The goal of this miniseries is to look at how we can reapply the world as it exists today in order to make a better world. We've covered, at this point, utilizing the urban space, how we define and organize community self-defense, and in this episode, we're covering the role of work in a new society. All right. So for this episode, uh, we did a quick review of Peter Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread. Um, we're going to focus on that here for a number of reasons. The Bread Book. The Bread Book. It's very, um, I guess, is it infamous or is it famous? Yeah. Um, it? Yeah, you know, I have a master's degree in English and I still can't tell you that. Okay, so it uses the word anarchy and communist at the same, communism at the same time, so that's kind of frightening for some people. But we're going to go ahead and take a look at it. I have no idea what any of those words mean until I started reading about bread. Bread book. So today we actually we decided to pick the book, The Conquest of Bread, because it's kind of a good framework textbook in terms of how we imagine and how we transition into something that arises from you know what we're talking about, which is some kind of collapse. This short text is not only a great intro to anarchism, but is particularly poignant right now for a variety of reasons. First, it is extremely accessible in terms of language used, and it's also widely available online for free. So if you're interested in learning about anarchy, it's a really easy text to find and read without feeling like you're reading something that's 100 years old. Um, I, th- I thought one thing uh, that was interesting about the book right off the bat was reading it okay so right around the time he wrote this i think it was published in 1892 um the language used in the book it still applies perfectly with today it's a perfect one-to-one ratio of i guess language used and um the emotion felt as well with the times that he was going through so he grew up in uh russia at the turn of the century and he's contemporaries with uh, rasputin who i just learned about a few months ago who's actually a pretty crazy guy. Definitely look into his history. But they actually went in opposite directions. Rasputin was common born and started hanging out with nobles later in his life just by acting like a total rock star. And Peter Kropotkin grew up uh, in nobility with a spoon in his mouth and threw all of that to the wind to 
um, joined the working class because he saw that they were getting mostly the short end of the stick and didn't really jive with that. Yeah, so the most widely cited chapter, Food, which we probably won't discuss today, is actually a really useful uh, text in highlighting the divide between urban and rural working class interests. Their diametric roles they play in creating a functional decentralized system. And I think we see those divisions springing up today uh, where working class folks feel very alienated for different reasons. And in a very simplistic fashion, urban folks have no respect for rural folks and vice versa. And that is a big function of why we're having the division we have today, despite the fact that we actually have a lot more in common than we have different other than our living conditions in terms of how many other folks live around us. So that that's a really good reason to just take a look at this book if you haven't it yet. But we will talk a little bit about that division at some point because we're going to talk about the title, which is The Conquest of Bread and what bread meant to Kropotkin for this text. So I have a question. So was this a division of uh, urban and rural so much when he wrote the book? Or was it so much difference between classes sort of like we also have today now? So, you know, generally speaking, urban spaces have always been more wealthy. Wealth was at least visible for folks that even if they were working class folks in the city, because at the end of the day, the folks that lived, the rich folks that lived in cities still needed people to take care of them. And prior to the availability of things like public transit or cars or anything like that, um, those folks had to live nearby in some capacity. So you had usually uh, starting with uh, medieval history, you would have um, a lord or somebody, and then you would literally have like shanties around them to take care of them. Right. So uh, some things never change. Yeah, that that's one way to look at it. So yeah, you know, this book is uh, it, it brings up a lot of really interesting things that, you know, really show that feudalism isn't that far from capitalism, because the living conditions haven't really changed. Um, we have better technology. And you could say the standard of living is higher, despite the fact that the average working class person today actually works more hours than somebody did in feudal Russia. So, you know, you can think about that how you want. They didn't get these <laughs> sweet benefits, though. Yeah, they didn't have health insurance. But, you know, who does really? <laughs> um, so anyways, as we're trying to imagine a world after collapse, chances are there likely will be different types of states attempting to organize amongst the chaos. And in reality, any large scale state is not likely to be focused on protecting the working class. So focusing on an anarchist lens seems more practical in developing small communities of resilience. Now, I know some folks might be more of a Marxist or whatever uh, that are listening to this, and this isn't to discredit those ideas, but in the conditions of a very recently collapsed state, which we're talking about in this podcast, how do we create communities that are resilient despite the fact that we're gonna, there's going to be a lot of shit going on, essentially? So in a few episodes, we'll be following this up with Bookchin's Post-Scarcity Anarchism, which I think will add another layer to this conversation that I think brings in some of these ideas that Kropotkin had about what the future had to offer. And Bookchin, among other folks, do a really good job of kind of continuing on that legacy. However, I think Bookchin is the most accessible, despite this text being a bit tough to get. Um, you, you can go straight to the, the uh, printer for that, AK Press. They're amazing. Uh, also an anarchist collective. So go get that book if you can, because it's like 20 bucks on their website. And on Amazon, it's like $150. So fuck Amazon. Or you can just get it online if you can find it. 
But I think that'll add another layer to this conversation, something that'll be really fun for us, and hopefully it will be for you too. So we talked a little bit, or we just had talked about the idea of like the conquest of bread. Why was bread so significant? And um, that Kropotkin decided to name this title after it. The main focus of this was around the transitory phase into stateless society and how we can organize in that society. He argues that the failures of past revolutions stem from working class fear of scarcity during transitory phases and the fact that when money becomes worthless, rural folks fear selling their goods in exchange for potentially worthless coin. He posits that true communalism functions when those fears are proven baseless, but it requires that the urban working class develop outreach to rural spaces and prove their good intent of a gift economy. In the chapter entitled Food, he argues that, in quote, the reorganization of industry on a new basis, and we shall presently show how tremendous this problem is, cannot be accomplished in a few days, nor, on the other hand, will people submit to be half-starved for years in order to oblige the theorists who uphold the wage system, to tide over the period of stress that they will demand what they have always demanded in such cases, communization of supplies, the giving of rations. Instead of plundering the baker's shops one day and starving the next, the people of the insurgent cities will take possession of the warehouses, the cattle markets, in fact, all the provision stores, and of all the food to be had. The well-intentioned citizens, men and women both, will form themselves into bands of volunteers and address themselves to the task of making a rough general inventory of each shop and warehouse. What is imperative is to release the quantity of provisions contained, exact amounts of the available food, the place where it is stored, and the means of distribution. Direct democracy and direct public ownership are crucial pieces of developing successful, small, autonomous communities, even with folks, and even especially with folks, who do not identify with such thoughts. With that said, we can dig in a little deeper on the core function of the economy, providing goods and services through work. So what's really interesting here is that Kropotkin acknowledges that there's this divide between the rural working class and the urban working class. And that's, I think, very evident today, just watching uh, how people vote. Although there's this, you know, you could talk about the intersectionality of race and, um, you know, sexual orientation and all these other things that play into how we vote despite our working class and whether or not those things work for or against us. You know, when we talk about these ideas, like what we are now is, I think 60% of people today live in an ur- what's considered an urban space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means less than one in two people live near where their food is grown. Right. We discussed that in the uh, episode, two episodes two ago, episodes ago yeah. about um, how the urban spaces have developed contingent on this idea of cheap fuel that can transport food vast distances now we're totally disconnected from our food systems right. in reality if it was bad during like he talks about the paris revolution um repeatedly and that this was one of the core functions of why it fell apart if it was bad then when tra- transporting food was by you know a cart on a horse or mule, yeah. yeah then you know when we're talking about if supply chains fail today how can we supply food for urban spaces and conversely how do rural folk value what urban folks have to offer them in terms of payment? In reality, it was just, again, in this scenario, we're talking about if there's collapse, how do we provide for people that don't live in urban or rural spaces? Or if we are in rural urban spaces, how we, how we help or how we convince rural folks to support us? You know, how do we make that goodwill transition? 
he makes the argument that ultimately it comes down to proving that we have these resources and that we're willing to share them with you. And it's important that not just individuals, but specifically folks that are not concerned with power and things like that are able to be a part of that decision-making in terms of identifying the resources that we already have available helps create that sense of community and that sense of uh, integration that is necessary in order to bring folks into this idea of a voluntary society where everyone uh, is able to give what they can. And in this case, that that bread, that food that is available, that is accessible, um, that can sustain everyone until other systems are developed, that is the crux of that transitory space of when we go from if supply chains start to collapse to let's create our own supply chains. So we need to be able to develop and network. Right. So it sounds like it's a baseline for um, society, basically, where um, you have to survive together before you can thrive. That's what these transitory um, periods are. They're time periods between, I guess, new status, or I guess, new, what do you want to call it? Um, the new world versus the old. Right. Okay. So new ways versus the old ways. Post-collapse, pre-collapse. Right, post-collapse, pre-collapse, whatever you want to call it. Um, the transitory periods are the times where people need to realize they're not thriving anymore. You need to go back to the basics. And it's time to basically eat food and get back to work until society can reform itself under new organization. Yeah, and the, the process that is the biggest concern and that he argues and correctly argues that is the biggest reason for failure of these types of systems and again, you know, I'll bring up the point that, you know, a lot of these revolutions that he refers to, the folks that are involved and that have to reorganize their communities, uh, in many cases, they chose that through their actions. In our case, we're kind of talking about an alternative situation. So the onus that was on them for starting the process, we don't have the luxury of because we are not we're not able to say we're planning or we're organizing for a specific thing. So we need to start building those networks into our into our rural or if we're in rural places, into our urban communities. Because at the end of the day, despite the fact that we try to think of urban spaces being require, uh, requiring rural spaces to survive, the reality is that the tools and the machines that those rural farms require to be able to produce are from cities. So there's definitely a uh, mutualist uh, imperative to creating a, these systems to be successful. Right. We all have to live together. We all have to work together. Um, if everybody is going to specialize their labor and their work, then you're going to need to share the products you produce. Yeah. And if we think back to the first episode that we put together on climate change and complex systems, the benefits of complex systems is the ability for specialization with specializations comes efficiency. And by creating more efficient systems and different layers of those systems, the whole economy or in environmental terms, uh, the ecosystem is more resilient by having these specialists. Right. And we don't want to lose that. Our goal isn't to dismantle that idea of people being specialists and uh, being able to provide in the way that they best fit, but rather to uh, show communal support for those skills that people have. And uh, that brings us, I think, to our next point outside of that transitory phase about what Kropotkin has to say about work. 
what is work and how do we develop an economy around meaningful work? So first off, he highlights the history of work. Further, he argues that every machine has had the same history, a long record of sleepless nights and of poverty, of disillusions and of joys, of partial improvements discovered by several generations of nameless workers who have added to the original invention these little nothings, without which the most fertile idea would remain fruitless. More than that, every new invention is a synthesis, the resultant of innumerable inventions which have preceded it in the vast field of mechanics and industry. End quote. What does this mean? This means that we, as the inheritors of generations past, have the right to those machines with the same inalienable rights we assign ourselves as we do today to spaces like public parks, to the fruit of our public research for vaccines, and so on. At the end of the day, we're standing on the shoulders of everyone in history, and because of that, we have every right to claim it as our own. Right. The fruits of their labor is... Um... I guess should become ours and should become the basis and building block for the production that we are going to do moving forward. Yeah. And the idea of intellectual property, and that's really what it comes down to when we start talking about things like machines, that somebody owns something despite it having built on the shoulders of millions of generations of people that have put in the labor to create the framework that they were able to build from that ignores all of their contributions to history. And without acknowledging that, uh, we are able to create the system where somebody at one arbitrary point is drawing this line that says, at this point, now I own this, despite the fact all of these people have put uh, their blood, sweat, and tears into it for so long. And when we imagine a new world, when we start talking about this idea of work, the first thing we have to understand is this idea of ownership in the way that we understand it when we talk about public space and uh, industry, that it, it doesn't work. Because this basic understanding that everything that we try to create is based on what people have created before. The second that we impediment people from being able to invent because of this idea of ownership. So I guess for ownership, I guess there's an arbitrary line drawn somewhere. Yeah, and it starts with, with uh, patent law from Disney. Um, that That's really where it began. This idea of like we can draw a line of when people own things. Uh, intellectual property meaning. But even without that idea of intellectual property of machinery, to say the factory owner owns a piece of machinery, therefore we all work for him and we make him $100 worth of sweaters and we all get paid $2, that's fucked. He didn't do anything to contribute to that production. So public, So the idea, what we're trying to get to here is... I'm trying to get to the, the, to the basis of it, though, because there's a chicken before the egg kind of argument happening here where... Whoever has the capital up front owns whatever. But why do they have capital? That's what I'm saying. Chicken and the egg. Why, how'd the capital get there in the first place? Because capitalism is a transition from feudalism. So it's the Lord's money. just With obviously, you know, exceptions that people exist and, you know, fucking are one in a million. But, you know, that's, that's whatever. Uh, you know, th to kind of bring this back home i guess to this idea of the podcast is what we need to understand is that when we look at things like if a community is left to stand for itself we can't acknowledge those the concept of ownership of the means of production to provide for people within a community if there's one i'm going to pick on sweater factories because that's the only thing my brain can think of right now because sure. we've been drinking so if there's one sweater factory in town and people need sweaters like, fuck the guy that owned the sweater factory. Everyone needs a sweater. Like, we 
we provide the means or we provide the labor for that production and whether it's people growing the cotton whether it's people manning the machines why is somebody getting paid or why do we have to listen to some person that claims to own that equipment despite not working it i guess that's i don't know we come up with this rationale for ownership as he, if it was their idea to come up to make sweaters then they own all of the sweaters that are produced and fuck that guy i guess it's set his house on fire when you say it out loud though yeah well yeah <laughs> anyways to bring it back to what we've been trying to talk about this idea of like how do we build a post-collapse society uh, we have to keep these things in mind that, you know, we have these very complicated relationships with things like employment, with or the resources that we have. Again, we have to understand that they were built on the shoulders of our ancestors, that because of that, we own a piece of that because of the fact that the millions of generations that have passed to provide us with the resources, the technology, the knowledge to create the civilization we live in today, our job isn't to cast that away the idea is that we should be using those resources to build the best possible life for folks that have kids. I think when we look at our child, we don't think about, I want you to be an accountant. So you're successful. You think I want you to have the best possible life. And when we in a capitalist society, those things become very intertwined. It's hard to segregate those details of what is a successful life uh, it, you know, it's scary the amount of people that I feel like I talk to that they understand their value or contribution to society based on what they did for a living. Sure. And they can't tie their personality away from who that is. Right. Uh, somebody asks, like, you know, who are you or what you do? Usually the first thing people say is their career or whatever. Yeah. Tell me about yourself. It's like, oh, I'm an accountant and yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, but what do you do? And that's, I think, one of the problems with boomers today retiring, and this is a total tangent, um, is that a lot of them retire and they don't know what to do because they've tied their, their identity is their work. And when they take away their work, they don't, they literally don't know what to do other than be on vacation because they need a break from work. And now it's like, well, you're not working, so what do you do? And they don't know what to do. Right. They don't know how to live their life. And so they just try to do this endless vacation thing that just gets old fast. And then and they also end up all, poor. All downhill yeah. from there. Yeah, so, you know, our first first part of the reason why I wanted to bring up this text is because we really need to talk about what is work um, and how do we value it in terms of both the, the physicality of it and the the communality of it. To transition, Kropotkin has a, a chapter entitled Anarchist Communism, uh, which argues for the idea of a working class solidarity international working class solidarity, and predicts the increasingly interconnected nature of global economics, which accelerates development because of access to different types of skilled labor, uh, which, again, refers back to that idea of chaos theory of complex systems that what's better specialty is better efficiency. Uh, he states that the astonishing perfection attained by the textile or mining industries in civilized countries is due to the simultaneous development of a thousand other industries, great and small, to the extension of the railroad system, to interoceanic navigation, to the manual skill of thousands of workers, to a certain standard of culture reached by the working class as a whole, to the labors, in short, of men in every corner of the globe. In this internationality of production, the fruits of production belong to the working class internationally. What does that mean for us? 
So, I, is he talking about the globalization of work here? Yeah. How that happens today? Where I and you know this is the thing about this text. It is a hundred and thirty years old. Yeah. Um. So his concept of what it meant to be specialized and um, a global economy is nothing like what we're thinking about today. Right. But you know what what we've been focused on is this idea of creating these resilient autonomous zones whether it's small towns cities regions whatever but at the end of the day you know we live in new england people aren't going to be growing sugar here and that that's not necessarily a bad thing but that does mean there are people that will be specialized in that in other right. parts of the world um and that doesn't mean that we should take advantage of them or you know how do we build those relationships that's when you have to bring something to the table to offer and so uh, a true sense of international recognition of being working class. And again, that that brings us back to this idea of respect that we had talked about the the diametric relationship between the working class, urban and uh, rural. And I think this also plays in an international forum or uh, whatever you want to call it, inter uh communal forum sure. uh, where there's a general sense of respect based on mutual understanding that we're all working class. Yeah. Um, no, Kropotkin makes all these really interesting arguments about what it means to own the means of production. And I think he makes a really cogent argument that we already do, uh, but for some reason we've given them up because of this idea of capital. And, you know, we could talk about the history of capital and how it stems from feudalism and, uh, I think there's plenty of podcasts that already kind of cover that. So I, I don't want to go down that road because I don't think it's really helpful for this conversation about uh, reimagining a future after the world that we live in collapses. Yeah, we got to stay hip and new and fresh. So yeah, we got to do something. Different. Yeah, we got to be unique. You know, we're, we're millennials. We're supposed to be unique. I'm special and I do feel like a snowflake. <laughs> like you're, you're a very dark snowflake. Like a... I guess like the volcanoes or I guess ash from fucking burning California and all the other fires in the world. You look like my thumb. Ugh, it's gross. He fucking cut it off and just got out of the hospital. And oh, just so you know, Andy, I am O negative, so I can give you blood in case you need a transfusion. I don't know what I am. I really should find out. No, I'm a universal donor. It doesn't matter. You, no, I know, but I should as know what I am. As long as you're negative. What if I'm not negative? Then you probably have like a reaction or something and you probably die. Oh well. I don't know if they can take out bad blood. Like I've never seen them do that. I know they can put blood into you, but I've I know never, they can take out I've bad never brains. Seen them take out bad blood. I don't know how they do that. Yeah. Bad brains is great. It's a great <laughs> band. All right, let's finish this. Uh, I don't even think we're close to finishing it. But uh, anyways, so I want to talk about something that came up this past election because I think it really plays into a lot of what Kropotkin argues in this text, and that has to do with Andrew Yang. And I don't think you probably expected that. But he did acknowledge something that's really important with his proposal for a UBI, universal basic income, in which case he's arguing arguing for the acknowledgement that there's a need for less work or that the need for work is less, uh, which are two different positions, but I think they stem from a very similar place. So Kropotkin, based on the premise of public ownership of production, articulates the need for less work. Much of what he defines as work is, in fact, busy work, even in the 19th century. The entire first third of the text is focused on the fact that labor is manipulated at the hands of capitalists through high unemployment and long hours for those employed. The idea generally is that by keeping high unemployment, labor costs are lower, 
and then working that labor as hard as possible because they can't afford to give up that job or be homeless means you get the best of both worlds. It's ridiculous, and it reminds me of the movie Office Space. Uh, the only thing I can think of is how, you know, corp- I've had a corporate jobs where you sit in the office, and for I'm there for nine hours a day, and I'd say I'd work for maybe five of them. And That's generous. I gained a whole lot of weight because I would just eat and dick around for the rest of it. And I don't know how there could be a, a need for less work with more people. That sounds like it's a flawed system, so we should probably figure that out and figure out where to put uh, that wasted potential. Like the human element is something that's kind of wasted right now with high unemployment and even with low unemployment, like most people are working two jobs, but they're fucking useless jobs. Right. And, you know, we always talk about this idea of like, or rather Republicans will make this argument that high, higher minimum wage will erase minimum wage jobs. And it's like, that shouldn't be a fucking bad thing. Like, it should be a great thing that we can automate a ton of work away so that people aren't fucking dicking around at a cash register for minimum wage. But the reality is that the benefits of that only go to a privileged few. And this is not something that's new. Uh, The entire first half of the text, like we just said, is focused on this idea of manipulating the working class through using unemployment long hours of wage. But a significant portion of this work is based on maintaining class systems. If you guys are into TV, you probably watched Downton Abbey, and the Lords make this really legitimate case that at the time, without those rich people, the laborers would go hungry because of lack of work. And when we say lack of work, that doesn't mean meaningful work. It means work for money. The first episode that we did with this podcast, we had talked about this idea of detangling this idea of net positive from profitability. And that it's more profitable to grow cattle in Brazil, have it shipped to China to be packaged, to then be sold in the U.S., than for a cow to be grown 10 miles from your house. Because money, just because of the way our economic systems work, efficiency in economic terms does not translate to efficiency for society. And I think that's a very important thing that people need to learn to delineate. This is not a flaw, but it is a function of capitalism and its precursor, feudalism. Without fear of starvation, workers will not work for less than a dignified, what we call now a living wage. So if we were not to have our labor siphoned off to build another yacht or to maintain you know, these ridiculous yards and various toys of the rich, uh, we are able to apply our labor to meaningful practice, uh, whether that means bettering our soil to carbon capture, you know, what we, the damage we've done to decentralizing our food systems, which may be economically speaking less efficient, but despite that also exponentially better for the environment to educating our children and creating a world that is based on betterment instead of the rich enrichment of a select few. The reality is that we can focus our labor on important work that enriches the lives of those around us while enriching ourselves instead of following that which creates more wealth and plunders the planet for short-term gains. So how do we get people involved in, I guess this this chapter is about how we get people involved in meaningful work. Yeah. And so that would, um, I think he gets into the, hang on, I got to take a look at it, and objections, the objections section of the book. Um, yeah, people will argue like if people are too lazy to work or if nobody is willing to work. Oh, we're talking about that later. Don't even worry about it. I'm getting into it. Okay. Sorry. We'll save that for later. 
Um, but I do want to talk about this because I think it's important, this idea of meaningful work. When we talk about this idea of meaningful work, we, again, it's really important for us to to disconnect that from wealth creation. Right. And when we dismiss this idea of creating wealth for people that don't need it, creating wealth for folks through shit like, uh, I'm going to pick on like, how old's your your uh, refrigerator? Uh, about 10 years old. Okay, mine's like three, and it's already having problems. Oh, they don't make them like they used to, which is a, a still a saying, I think. How old am I? I don't know. If you're as old as I, I am, too old. The point is that, like, this idea of planned obsolescence, if we were to spend marginally more money building products like refrigerators, uh, which would create maybe not more efficient products, but products that last longer, we would remove a lot of waste into the planet, but it would be less profitable. But for the planet, for us as consumers, would be better. In terms of what we're talking about, in terms of this idea of post-collapse, where we're not building refrigerators, we're trying to survive. Folks that are working those meaningless jobs of producing refrigerators that don't need to be created, those people are, they're focused on doing things that are meaningful. Yeah, it's getting rid of busy work. Yeah, and the idea of like folks that say, I would love to be a teacher, but I can't afford to live on $34,000 a year or whatever it might be. You know, those people should be fucking teachers because we need them and we need we need people that do meaningful work. They, they should be teachers, not fucking teachers. But yes, I know. What you're I mean, they could be fucking teachers. I mean, teachers I mean, are people, too. They are. But are they? I had some. Mom. I used to be a teacher. I know. I still don't think you're human. I've never seen your belly button. I can show it. All right, we'll do that. It later. looks like my thumb right now. No, God. <laughs> Moving on. So, I, yeah, the the idea is that if we were to to transfer the labor that goes towards meaningless work towards meaningful work, even despite the loss of efficiency by creating smaller systems. It would be more than offset because of the fact that there's so much labor being put towards things that are not beneficial for the average person. Like, it doesn't matter that there's fucking 10 more yachts for Zuckerberg. Like, it doesn't affect us at all, other than if you happen to be working on one. But if you were doing something else, cool. Like, it would be a a net positive for this small town to have a guy, an electrician, not working on a yacht, but you know, updating the electrical grid or whatever. So Kropotkin's, con- Kropotkin's conclusion, why is that fucking name so hard? It's difficult. It I is. I want to call him Crackpotkin. <laughs> I'm it's Italian. Like, crazy. You know, we, we do a lot of vowels. Like, I'm not used to this. Kropotkin. Yeah. <laughs> His conclusion, uh, Kropotkin's conclusion is to develop a framework in which these conditions are not possible. He also points to much of the right, or as we now think of them as the right, as a response to recognizing the failures of this system, and that the far right, what he calls the development of individualism, is a response to recognizing the failures of this system, even if the folks cannot or will not articulate this particular position. He argues in the chapter Anarchist Communism that, in quote, we hold further that communism is not only desirable, but that existing societies founded on individualism are inevitably impelled in the direction of communism. The development of individualism during the last three centuries is explained by the efforts of the individual to protect himself from the tyranny of capital and of the state. 
for a time he imagined and those who expressed his thought for him declared that he could free himself entirely from the state and from society. Instead of driving these folks away and allowing the alt-right to develop those ideas of individuality into something dangerous, we should be working to bring those folks into the fold. Why don't they trust government? And what does the role of capitalism play in that? There's an opportunity to work across the aisle here, which, again, I know this is a little off topic, but valuable in developing sustainable, resilient systems within our communities, because at the end of the day, every community has those folks in them. How do we bring them into the fold of this idea of communalism, collectivism, communism, anarchy, whatever we want to call it, this idea that we collectively own the means of production, that we have a right to the products of what we produce? And how do we translate that to people that might think that this idea of no government, no capitalism is unimaginable? So I think I asked you this before we started recording the episode, but I asked you um, if there was a way for communism and capitalism to coexist. And I think that's something we're going to probably broach in a few other topics that we cover down the line. But- what do you mean by coexist, like in, in one space or like nearby? Because like we have plenty of evidence nearby of the United States not allowing that to exist. Right. So I was going to say nearby or even in the same space. In the same, I don't know if they could exist in the same... I mean, how could it? If, if It's an interesting idea because if you look at someone like Richard Wolff, who's one of the economics professors at U, uh, University of Amherst, mm-hmm. uh, UMass Amherst, UMass, rather, yep. um, he he's a traditional Marxist economic professor, mm-hmm. uh, although depending on which edgelord you talk to, he is not a real Marxist. His idea is essentially this idea of uh, transitory capitalism without revolution. And some people think that's bullshit. Personally, I think those people are just kids that have never dealt with war. And being a child that was in high school during 9-11, I'd like to not see more war. I mean, come on. I like, mean, I love Call of Duty, so I'd like to see more, like, thumb wars. I, I think that's what we should call it from now on. Really? Thumb wars? Yeah, you thumbless piece of shit. <laughs> tried to cut it off, dude. More uh, thumb wars. Oh, that's brutal. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, his idea is that by building um, models of cooperatives, we can challenge capitalism without challenging without having to literally burn everything down. But as we've seen probably in the last few weeks, capitalists will literally do anything in order to not be challenged. Hopefully he's right. I would like to see that. It's much better than the world we're talking about where we're trying to figure out how we're going to get fucking bread. Pick up the pieces, yeah. But if you are not familiar with Richard Wolff, check him out. He's brilliant. Uh, He's got some really great ideas. Hopefully we don't have to toss him to the your point that you were going to make about him. I don't think I had a point other than you were asking if there was a world. Oh, Um, so does he have an answer? So his answer is that we use co-ops as a direct uh, challenge to capital systems. So then I think that's where. So, so yeah, if we, if we were to like talk about like Proudhon or something, his idea, he was one of the founders of anarchist theory, but his argument was this idea of like cooperatives where, employees get the profits of what they create the idea of direct labor means direct profits and that we could create a stateless society because with small businesses that are all communally owned through the employers or their employees rather um that the idea the need for government wouldn't exist because of the fact that all these small businesses would have 
be directly responsible for what they produce, um, whether it's pollution or good products and things like that. And that having that direct responsibility, you know, at the end of the day, the anarchist theory is about direct democracy. Sure. Um, That with no middleman. Yeah, with no middleman. And it's getting a little off topic, but uh, that we tend to think that markets are synonymous with capitalism, and that's not the case. And literally, you know, if you were to talk about like what is the vulgar term, the literal term of capitalism, what we're saying is capitalism is investors profiteering off of the labor of other people, not directly doing the labor, but providing the means, whether usually through financial investment for production. And, you know, if we take out that capital, production in a marketplace can still exist in a society, a society whether it's anarchist, socialist, communist, well, not communist, but um, anarchist and socialist um, systems can still have markets. And that's this totally off topic. Uh, I don't even understand how we got here. I do. I'm going to bring it back. So okay. we're talking about Andrew Yang and uh, okay. the UBI. So yeah, uh, Andrew Yang is an interesting, I don't know, anomaly uh, in terms of policy. Uh, he's He seems like a good dude, but he's fucking dumb as shit, but somehow stumbled. <laughs> like, get him. Yeah. Okay, go, 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 get him. <laughs> no, he, he, he genuinely seems like a good guy. If you read any stories about him as the CEO, like... Worst Year Ever does a really good um, history on Andrew Yang when they went through all their different uh, candidates. And he talks, or they talk a lot about how he's like the cool frat boy bro boss who kind of stumbled into the position that he was in and then decided to run for office. And at some point along the way before he got there, the idea of a UBI became like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like technology is making things more efficient so people aren't going to be able to have jobs in the future. And like that's pretty common sense, but for some reason he's the only person that was—I almost want to say—dumb enough to be like, "I'm going to run on this as a policy." Not that it is a bad policy, but it's so out of the realm of American politics that it—it it was just kind of like this weird, like, "Oh, let's watch this dumb guy do this thing," and people listened and were like, "Oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense." But like ninety percent of the other stuff he says is stupid. Like he, he awesome. again, he's, he <laughs> seems like a really good, nice guy, but he's not like, he's not as smart as you think he is because of the fact that he's like some Asian tech guy who stumbled into a really good job for a company that got bought out after having a small company that got bought out and just kind of being at the right place at the right time. All right. So he, his platform, or I guess one of his main sticking points for his platform for running was the UBI. Yeah. And, and that's something that came up in, was that the 16 election? No, uh, 2020. It was only like 18 months ago. I know it seems like it was like we were in I high school. I feel like I've aged at least five years. Yeah. So anyways, to get kind of, I guess, back to really? side. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm blown away. With <laughs> uh, so the idea of UBI is very kind of basic in that we're acknowledging that as technology evolves and things become more efficient, uh, labor n- needs are less. Uh, what one person or what required 100 people on a factory line to do 30 years ago now is one guy. Um, not to go into my own work personally, but uh, one of my clients is a very big contractor and they have these multi-million dollar robots that 
now are replacing factory lines and they're having huge problems with the union because the unions don't want to be replaced by robots and that's a fucking fair point because all that's going to do is our shareholders are going to profit from it whereas the workers are going to lose their union jobs i mean that's that's fucking bullshit the point being is this is not something that's new this is something that even in kropotkin's era he was talking about being a problem that a technology then fostered unemployment and that we don't we don't value meaningful work without the profitability piece and that you know if you walk around the streets in this trash no one cares that you cleaned it up but it's still something that should be done and is good for the collective good but if nobody's going to pay you then like you still starve even if you did that right and that's really fucked up and the idea of a ubi is acknowledging that we produce way more than what our wages are and that ultimately the limitations of what's available for wages will no longer be enough to keep most people in a position where they won't be destitute. The basic idea is that, you know, I wanted to bring this up because Andrew Yang, is he's found a very weak spot in capitalism's um, very shiny armor, taxpayer funded. Uh, you know, the fact that so many people, especially if you go on to like 4chan, 8chan, all these different online forums, there's a ton of right wingers that have acknowledged that Andrew Yang has spoken to something that they are aware of, despite the fact that they may be on the opposite end of the spectrum from Peter Kropotkin. Like as an anarchist, you couldn't be further from anarchist than tech bro. And all these guys that are also kind of the opposite of that in some weird triangulated relationship, these alt-right teen young white boys are like, this makes a lot of sense. So this brings me back to that idea that we were just talking about earlier, that at some point we need to find a way to bridge that gap between what we consider that rural how poor. How do we bring those people in Yeah, how do we, exactly. Um, you know, Andrew Yang, in some weird fucking way, has kind of started to do that in acknowledging this this failure of capitalism and that you know when we talk about the greatness of capitalism and we can talk about how conflating technological uh, development with capitalism is like a huge problem but the point is that he's using that as a tool to get folks into the fold of this idea of returning wealth towards people whether or not they're able to work work jobs that are uh, that create wealth Okay, so I guess it's bringing me to the question that I asked earlier, where capitalism and communism can it coexist in the same space. And it sounds like uh, with the UBI, they're addressing the basic needs of people that aren't being met with their wages. So they're going ahead and, and I guess, bridging that gap and then going ahead and sticking with capitalism. But the problem is that uh, UBI isn't sufficient and, you know, you're still talking about wealth extraction. Right, they're still trying to you know. address it, but I'm saying it's... Uh, what, what UBI really is, it, and I think in future elections you're going to see it more, and again, this we're getting, I think, far well, away from... After the current election. I'm yeah, like, uh, assuming that society yeah. doesn't collapse. Money already. Yeah. It already uh, happened. At the point, you know, the idea I think is, or that I want to get to is that, like, in a very real way... UBI is kind of a stopgap the way, you know, welfare is. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I know plenty of people on welfare, and like, yeah, they're surviving, but, yeah. but, um, you know, is that significantly better than the way things were a hundred years ago? I mean, right, and also with welfare and our uh, UBI, 
are those supposed to be in place for you know indefinitely or are those supposed to be like they are bridges uh to something better yeah well the problem is again we're talking about this idea of segregation of work there's plenty of uh, meaningful work that exists out there but people are not able to do it because they can't get paid enough um and the idea is that if we're rebuilding a society we should be focused on rebuilding a society that's providing meaningful work not just wealth creating work and that meaningful work is a, a net benefit for all of society and there's a lot of things you know so obviously i'm into farming one of the biggest concerns or one of the big arguments right now in in the agricultural sector is around what's called regenerative agriculture which we'll talk about in a couple episodes the basic framework of that conversation is that regenerative agriculture is focused on building better soil, but does it slightly, and the big argument is, how do we make it more profitable so that it can compete with traditional ag? And the short answer is that it can't. The long answer is that eventually it will because we're going to run out of minerals in the ground. Right. It's the same thing as uh, large corporations and cities offsetting their carbon footprint by paying for it. Eventually, they're going to have to do something better. Yeah, you can't just keep paying for it. You're going to run out of people to pay. Right. Um, and that's the same idea with this idea of regenerative agriculture, um, is that it's kind of... The argument is flawed because it's focused on profitability, because profitability doesn't take into account what's considered, in economic terms, public good. Uh, and that that part gets dismissed so often, like going back to this idea of UBI is that it may be a stopgap, but it doesn't acknowledge that public good component of it. So that's kind of where capitalism can't coexist peacefully with any other alternative state. And I mean, there's a there's a very long conversation you can have about capitalism needing new markets to exist and that the past 70 years, the reason why capitalism Our parents, for example, you know, they lived through the greatest wealth growth in history of the entire planet is because cheap fuel made it possible to go into new markets. And now there's no new markets because every continent has been Americanized. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of people tell you, oh, invest your money in the stock market, you'll have 10% growth. You know, that's the average growth rate over the last 30 years. And it's like, well, yeah. There's no more Zimbabwe's to fucking drop a McDonald's into. Like, those days are gone. Uh, and the reality is that capitalism doesn't grow that fast because... Let's make new ones. Let's make new Zimbabwe's. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, we've gone very, very off topic. Uh, Where are we? Um, These notes are... So, later on, um, he talks a little bit about what we should be striving for in terms of how we access work in a chapter called Expropriation, in which he argues that, in quote, what we do want is to arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be ensured the opportunity in the first instance of learning some useful occupation and becoming skilled in it, and next, that he shall be free to work in his trade without asking leave of master or owner, and without handing over to landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces. In short, this gives folks the autonomy to use and develop their skills and interests into meaningful work that is beneficial for both themselves and for their community. What is community and how does this play into our idea of work? I think we've covered this a little bit, but he also says that, in quote, Today the United City has ceased to exist. There's no communion of ideas. The town is a chance 
agglomeration of people who do not know one another, who have no common interest, save that of enriching themselves at the expense of one another. What fatherland can the international banker and the rag picker have in common? End quote. Uh, and, you know, it's crazy because this is 130 years ago. And I feel like our parents would say, well, we used to know our neighbors. But even 130 years ago, he was saying we didn't really know our neighbors. No, everybody was too busy working. Yeah. And we might know them superficially or maybe within a, an immediate distance. Uh, but at the end of the day, the idea of understanding our community in terms of outside of the class structure that we have, you know, our neighborhoods, my neighborhood is full of people that have similar work. Um, they're generally white collar. Um, that is not the case everywhere. And places where they're primarily blue collar, um, those don't overlap. And, you know, that's that's part of how the system is designed, um, that we're, we're segregated in that capacity. When we talk about, or when he talks about this idea of work and community, the, the focus is that we need to build those communities, much like we were talking about building those relationships between urban and rural spaces, though we also need to do it in a much localized form of that, where there needs to be more sense of collective community across the spectrum of types of work. Right, and I think Kaprakin addresses it in his book. Um, he goes over um, manual labor versus uh, what he called brain work and the differences between the two and how one is valued over the other and one became more preferable than the other. Um, I think that we can we can kind of use that as the ruler to measure against rural, the rural and urban spaces like we were talking about today. Well, I, I think the, the, the separation of classes, what he was saying uh, back in 1892 when he published the book to today, I think that still applies. Yeah, and he doesn't talk about it so much, but it's definitely something that's kind of been um, fomenting in my head. This idea of like developing a matrix of um, skills so it's not just like we're talking about everyone generally like it'd be like an updated aptitude test that they used to give no like <laughs> no like um tell people you're gonna be a janitor oh you don't want to know what i got um i do we, now is it gonna be we took one right you're gonna be a uh, did you take one yeah i thought we took one in high school i think they just like i think they had somebody like take it for me or something no i never took one uh, i'm test. pretty sure i took one but maybe that was just my my homeroom I wanted to. I, never uh, I got something bad. That's awesome, um, Trash Man. <laughs> trash Man are glorified people. I don't mean to malign them. They have a very unglorified job, but they work super hard. Um, what the hell was that? I can't even remember, but it was something I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I at the time I was like, yeah, I'm, I might graduate high school. I might, j like, much like our math class, I just walked out of. Uh, Classic. Classic uh, public school. Now, yeah, now I'm an accountant ironically um but anyway so i've had this this idea that i've been kind of building in my head of like what it means to uh, create in a society where wages aren't the primary fact or driver for people to do uh menial work so realistically if we're oh, let's pick on trash men when we talk about that type of work it's not glorified it's not fun it's not skilled in terms of like i don't want to say it's not skilled but it's not um, something that's so technologically or knowledge-based challenging that a large portion of the population can't do it. This idea of developing a matrix where conversely between skill set and 
um, desire to do that type of work, there would be a, a band of hours. So, for example, it's, let's just say the average work schedule is like 30 hours a week. Just for example, just sure. to make this simple. Jobs that are low in demand, like uh, might only there be double the amount of positions, but everyone would only work 15 hours. Right. So instead of being focused on the monetary gain, there's a different uh, benefit to doing that type of work that doesn't create class division and things like that. Sure. So that's a different way to separate labor um, in a meaningful way. That's not based on wage. And I think that's one of the hard parts that people will have um, using this to imagine how to apply this to the world today. I guess we are just used to wage work and used to being told that the value of our work is based on a random quantifiable number, our arbitrary quantifiable number. Which is really just based on how much wealth extraction there can be especially compared to the type of work because very desirable work for example even if it is in demand and um they're able to draw a lower salary because people are willing to do it right interesting so uh kropotkin makes this really interesting argument when he talks about this idea of um dirty miserable dangerous work um that when it's no longer in driven by the focus uh, interests of wealth extraction that it can be made uh, much safer and more desirable he makes the argument and quote a factory forge and mine can be healthy and magnificent as the finest laboratories in modern universities and the better the organization the more will man's labor produce if it be so can we doubt that work will become a pleasure and a relaxation in a society of equals which hands will not be compelled to sell themselves to toil and to accept work under any other conditions repugnant tasks will disappear because it is evident that these unhealthy conditions are harmful to society as a whole this motherfucker predicted the roomba sure <laughs> he's just he's basically saying uh yeah anything that's unenjoyable to do we'll just go ahead and phase it out with technology and let the humans go ahead and continue the meaningful meaningful work whatever that is yeah i mean i think it's a mix of that and also acknowledging that like the working conditions for a lot of people don't need to be as bad as they are the main reason why those working conditions are so shitty is because of the fact that there's no financial interests to improve them the cost benefit of having to hire low wage workers with shitty conditions is better than hiring low wage workers with good conditions. Uh, much like you would look at like a, a Walmart and say, well, you know, if you have to hire people every three weeks because people keep quitting, maybe you should just treat them slightly better so you don't have to keep fucking hiring people. And their response is, we did the uh, cost benefit analysis of it and. Actually, it's, yeah, it's it's slightly less expensive to hire people every few weeks. So fuck it. We'll just do that. It's fucking stupid and we're wasting our HR department's money and time. But in the long run, it actually saves us a little bit more money. And that's fucked. Yeah, that it, that's messed up to say out loud and think about. But that's that definitely probably happens. Yeah. And like to circle that back down to like what we're talking about by understanding these relationships between work, wealth, development, uh, labor and the the work conditions, we can see how these interrelate and how if we are building uh, a new society around this idea of what is work, 
uh, we can better imagine how we have to rethink what work means in those conditions in order to be to create a beneficial, mutually uh, accessible, collectively I don't know happier society. That we need to understand that if we don't respect other workers, then we all fail because everyone's going to be fucking miserable. Right, and I think one thing that it's missing from um, well. One thing that I had a hard time finding, I've worked a lot of jobs since I entered the workforce, but one thing that I found difficult to get a hold of was a sense of fulfillment and feeling accomplished at the end of the day, where my job didn't feel meaningless. I worked a lot of meaningless jobs, and it does have an effect on a person, but um, when you can find meaningful work, it makes you, it does make you happier, and it gives you a, a sense of accomplishment. And it gives you a sense of pride and it makes you ready to go into work because you know you're going to put in a hard day's work and get what you need out of it. Yeah, and especially if you know it's going towards the collective good, I think that is helpful in knowing that even if you do have some kind of menial bullshit job, that it's like, yeah, this sucks, but it is for the betterment of everyone collectively. I think that also has, when you have a meaningful life outside of that work, it helps dull the pain i guess you right say. and he does talk about volunteer work as well yeah and um actually before we get there i do want to talk about um the idea of i guess the biggest fear of capitalists and what you know the big boogeyman they love to give us which is that if we give people stuff they'll stop working which kropotkin tackles head on and makes some really fucking basic cases of why that's complete bullshit and i'm gonna just do a giant quote from him because he says it better than I can. The objection is known if the existence of each is guaranteed and if the necessity of earning wage does not compel men to work, nobody will work. Every man will lay the burden of his work on another if he is not forced to do it himself. They fear that without compulsion, the masses will not work. Have we not heard the same fears expressed twice before? Once when the anti-abolitionists in America before the emancipation of the Negroes and for a second time by the Russian nobility before the liberation of the serfs, it was the refrain of the French noblemen, the refrain of the Middle Ages, a refrain is as old as the world. Moreover, who but the economists themselves taught us that while wage earners work is very often indifferent, an intense and productive work is only obtained from a many who see his wealth increase in proportion to his efforts. The economists only prove that man really produces most when he works in freedom, when he has a certain choice in his occupations, when he has no overseer to impede him, and lastly, when he sees his work bringing in a profit to him and to others who work like him, but bringing in little to idlers. So, so yeah, his argument here is that People are motivated to work when they see the direct product of what they're creating. And despite hundreds of years of history from the, the releasing slaves in the United States or the slaves emancipating themselves in the United States to every feudal system where the serfs were freed of their labor, uh, none of these has yet to prove themselves that once those systems were displaced, that people would stop working. So why would dismissing capitalism be any different? In this concept, he continues to say that like uh, this idea of idlers, that when we speak of idlers, 
that we must understand, first off, that we're talking about a small minority of people, that we need to rethink this concept of idlers. He says, in quote, would it not be wise to study the origin of that idleness? Whoever observes with an intelligent eye sees well enough that the child's reputed lazy at school is often the one which simply does not understand because he is being badly taught or is suffering caused by poverty. A workman lazy in the workshop cultivates his garden at dawn while gazing at the rising sun. Somebody has said that dust is matter in the wrong place. The same definition applies to nine-tenths of those called lazy. So I guess that's trying to address the issue of, or I guess separate who is actually lazy and who has larger problems, whether... Yeah, and I think this goes back to idea of meaningful work, um, that most people will do meaningful work. It's an, it's human nature to want to be beneficial to the people we care about. Nobody wants to be a drain on the people we care about. But our economic system has disconnected us from what we produce as well as how that affects the people around us. If, for example, you go, if you're on welfare and you know you can work, but you manage to manipulate the system uh, to you know receive benefits, there's no direct effect on the people that you care about. They're paying the same amount of taxes, whatever. Nothing changes for them. But in a direct democracy, that changes. What you do directly affects everyone around you that sense of autonomy you have is directly correlated to the folks around you, which creates different types of direction in terms of helping folks acknowledge why they should work and also helping them be driven to find meaningful work. Right. So having meaningful work, it gets rid of the sense of entitlement, basically. Yeah. And not only just sense of entitlement, but also, this idea of that his example, a workman lazy in the workshop cultivates his garden, that person should be a farmer, not uh, working in a workshop. Right. That we we are driven by capital and, again, that idea of wealth production instead of doing uh, meaningful work. Right. Yep. Pro- production of food is more important than being one more drone on a workshop floor, especially when we're talking about this idea. You know, we have to keep this in context of a society where there's an overabundance of people that can do work. Uh, There's no shortage of people that can labor. So the idea of if you don't do this, no one else will that I, which I think is kind of grilled into us from a young age that you need to be working and productive because if you don't, then whatever you're a drain on society and that, you know, if everyone doesn't work, then nothing's going to get done. It's complete bullshit. It's because our labor value is predicated on unemployment and our fear of being able to not provide for ourselves and our family. So this is more inefficiency in a system where the human element is being wasted. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is um, the chapter, The Need for Luxury, which he talks a bit about this idea of the basic argument that, oh, if everyone is working class, then there's no luxuries. He makes a really clear case that if we're able to produce what we can in uh, limited hours, because, say, he he proposes about five hours a day of labor, today it could probably be eight hours a week, if not less. There's plenty of time to produce the necessary goods for those luxuries. So his argument, he makes the case of, For people that want to play piano, they work there four hours a week or four hours a day, and then they spend a couple hours 
as a collective for people that enjoy pianos, building pianos. So they have that freedom and that luxury to build those luxury items that they need in order to do what they want to do, which is so common sense that it didn't even occur to me until I reread it. Right. So uh, I, again, this comes to putting people in place where they need to be for work and also where they want to be for their leisure time. I guess people try to do that today where there's, you know, like I'm in beer league hockey. I do that on the side. I don't think I'd ever get paid to play hockey at all, ever. I'm pretty sure people would pay me to get off the ice. But yeah, I guess he's finding a way to to mix in the leisure time that everybody craves. You can't work all the time. And what makes you want to go back to work is finding things to do in your off time that make life pleasurable. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't, again, we don't spend our time working because we want to work. It's because we spend our time working so that we can afford to do the things we want to do when we're not working. And he makes the case that despite this idea that if we are in an anarchist or communist or whatever society, this idea that all those luxuries are gone because of the fact that we're not doing busy work and with the development of technology, we now have the time and resources to even focus on those things and methodically and enjoyably do them without being crunched by the overwhelming pressures of making every moment of our lives uh, focus on becoming profitable. You know, we're a, we have we decided to start a podcast and and our goal was to do something that we cared about and we're both passionate about. And one of the challenges in uh, capitalism is to separate our passions and things that we're interested in from profitability. Because everything in capitalism becomes a side hustle for profitability Mm -hmm. instead of doing it because of the sake we enjoy it. And we can never enjoy those things because we're too busy thinking about how can we do this and make money. Well, yeah, I was going to say I only enjoy it if I can make money. So, I I mean, literally, I only sleep when I get paid for it. I will count this as volunteering. This is the first time I've ever done anything for free. It's a tax (laughs) write-off. But like seriously, every night sleep studies. Yeah. Yeah. It's the only way. I don't sleep unless I get paid. Booyah. That's nice. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to take that in there. Um, but yeah, the idea of like, if you, if you Google like starting a podcast, the first things that come up is how to make podcasts profitable for you because nobody can do things with the idea of like doing it for the sake of doing it because I want to do it and I enjoy doing it. The idea of doing things because of uh, an intrinsic value and not for this idea of wealth creation. Our society is so fucked that we can't separate those things. And what we're trying to do is talk about a society that we don't do that, where we do things be- for the sake of enjoying them, not just the result of them, but the process of them. All Everything that's involved in creating something we're passionate about. We can enjoy it because we're not thinking about this is taking time away from when I should be at work, making more money over time, or how do I profitize this so I can make more money? Wouldn't all of that be nice? Making money? No, just this whole reimagining. It all all sounds very nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, for a post-collapse society, it doesn't sound too bad. As long as there's hockey, I'd be okay with that. Do Do you think we could produce hockey and beer? I think we have the technology. The beer would be pretty bad and the hockey would be worse, but I'd be pretty happy with that. I mean, I got hops in my backyard. I grew some two-row a couple years ago. We could do it. 
I'm not worried. Let's get it done, dude. Let's let's re civilize, reestablish. Yeah, we're that's that's the idea. Is like how technology. Yeah, if shit falls apart, which I think, I mean, just based on this past week of fucking news, I mean, it seems to be escalating exponentially every week at this point. And um, I, I mean, the president is openly talking about the fact that he won't acknowledge the results of the election if he doesn't win. And the question is how... You called that on an earlier episode, too, if you didn't... uh, Yeah, if you're a Patreon, you would know that because, you know, everything's about making money. Sure is. Go check that episode out. It's just expensive to host a podcast. So uh, you probably notice if you go on our Patreon, which I'm not plugging at all right now. Um, I'm on there. I am. Okay. I didn't do it, though. The whatever they're called, the levels are very low, and we don't really offer anything other than when we record episodes that we look at each other and say, do we want to really release that? I was pretty stoned during that one, so I don't even remember what I said, but you should definitely listen to it. Yeah, it was mostly about the election, our predictions for it. And so far, we've been pretty fucking accurate. So anyways, uh, yeah, if you if you want to follow us on pa- or uh, contribute to what we're doing so that we can afford to keep hosting this, because it is expensive and we do enjoy doing it. Uh, go check out our Patreon. We talk about stuff there occasionally. Not at this point. Occasionally means once uh, that we don't post here. We'll do it more if you like it. Yeah, I mean we we can talk and drink. Like we're we're pretty good at both of those things. At this point, I think we've kind of covered the idea of the conquest of bread uh, and how it relates and provides us with a framework for how we should be thinking about a new society and how we can. Um, view work separate from this idea of wealth development because wealth creation isn't that important in a society that has limited resources especially one that's trying to recover from the destructions of of capitalism uh decimating the ecology of the planet so one little side note uh, we live in massachusetts and if you go through the massachusetts department of wildlife to see what's edible in your ponds for fishing most every single pond within a 30 mile radius of my house for example is uh there's no fish you can eat that you can eat more than once a month because of the chemicals in the ponds so yeah capitalism hasn't been great to the environment that sounds awful you can't even eat the fish yeah and that's fresh water yeah and so i mean i guess salt water might be better but Still, just the general idea that like things that were taken for granted 300 years ago, we've managed to make it totally incapable of being used in 300 years. Yeah, we got to fix that. Yeah, so we got to reimagine the shit out of that. Yeah, so capitalism has fucked everything over, and we're we're trying to figure out kind of how would we uh, reimagine a world in which we can re understand. I want to stop using the word re, uh, where we can. Um, un, un, unimagined, unimagined the shitty reality. This shitty fucking system in which we trade our labor for eight hours a day so that we have just enough food so we don't starve and we rely on credit cards when bad things happen. Yeah, I just quit my fucking job today. Woo! But it's okay. I'm starting another one on Monday. You got a whole weekend off? Yeah, I got two days off in a row. Well, fuck you. It's amazing. I'm going to sleep. What are you, the 1%? Yes. <sighs> All right, I have more drinking to do, so let's end this episode. Thank you for listening. 
uh, Peter Kropotkin and the Conquest of Bread, aka the Bread Book. This dude is awesome. Turn of the century. Read up on his shit. Read up on Rasputin. They're both crazy motherfuckers from Russia. And if they could come up with these ideas at the turn of the century then, then we could come up with some new ideas on how to fix the shit show that we're in now. Yeah, and I think next episode we're going to be doing... Zapatistas. Uh, yes, we'll be talking about the Zapatistas. Um, I haven't gotten my assigned reading yet. Yeah, I mean, I just handed you slave the... It's a big-ass book. It is a big-ass book. I, you're going to make me read all of that? No. All of, of all of these all of these podcasts sound like book reports. I'm sorry about that. I'm trying to get better on it. Andy's pretty much read all of these books, and I'm just sort of reading them, trying to get the gist of it. I mean, I have to reread them. Like, you? The last time I read these was like a decade ago. Wow. Mm. All right, let's get the hell out of here. Let's go do some drinking. Uh, we're going to do the next episode. Uh, I don't think we have a schedule for it, so I'll... Uh, we've been, yeah, we've been pretty much doing every two weeks. Every two weeks or so. Um, so that'll be the next for this mini series. Uh, I will probably be also dropping another episode on grazing management for you people that are interested in that regenerative agriculture I was just talking about. It's going to probably be a three-part series on regenerative agriculture systems, specifically in terms of grazing systems. Uh, It's a lot, so I'm trying to make it as palatable as possible. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Until then... Enjoy this episode, and we'll be in touch in a week or two. Peace, nerds.